Hey, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of the Wealth Management Day podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, and I wanted to really tell you how much I enjoyed doing this webinar and how happy we are to be able to bring it to you in podcast form. So I'm sure some of you may have seen it uh, online live, which is great. Some of you maybe couldn't make it, and some of you maybe are just hearing about it for the first time. So uh, this is here for those of you who like to listen to audio. Uh, maybe you're running, maybe you're you're driving. Uh, hopefully you're going somewhere good. And uh, we wanted to put this in the podcast form to to spread it more, to give people more access to it. We thought it was a great idea. Uh, and I've been talking to a lot of the leaders in the enterprise wealth tech space. And it came to us when I was talking to some of them about, hey, can we bring everyone together and maybe have a discussion like we used to have at conferences, which we're not having for quite a while, and talk about the future of enterprise wealth tech firms like broker-dealers, banks, large uh, RIAs, uh, RIA consolidators, asset managers, you know, firms that my company, Ezra Group, works with a lot. And they have different needs uh, than smaller firms would. And I think there's different uh, there's going to be different changes in the industry due to the pandemic than smaller firms are going to have. So talking to the top leaders of the wealth tech space in the enterprise area, I thought would be a good idea. And it turned out great. We got a huge response, uh, over 500 registers, I think 550 registers, uh, which was fantastic. Um, and a lot of good Q&A sessions during the conference, uh, during the webinar as well. So here it is in podcast form. Uh, please listen. It's about an hour long, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. We didn't cut anything out because it was all great content. Uh, at the end, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, share this wherever you can on your social media. And enjoy our webinar, The Future of Enterprise Wealth Tech. Welcome to this webinar. Uh, this is the future of enterprise wealth tech, and my name is Craig Iskowitz. I'm the CEO of Ezra Group, a uh, consulting firm. We help wealth management firms make better technology decisions. And I'm very excited to introduce our guests, speakers, for this podcast. I'm just going to quickly run through them, and then we're going to jump right in. We're not going to do any long intros. Uh, the first guest is Stuart DePina, president of InvestNet. Uh, we have Cheryl Nash, CEO of Tegro 118, John Lenny, CEO of Vestmark, Randy Bullard, Global Head of Wealth, Charles River Development, and Eric Clark, CEO of Orion Advisor Tech. So the format for today, uh, we are going to be going through a bunch of questions that we've uh, prearranged. We will have uh, some Q&A, so feel free to use the Q&A button in Zoom and uh, post some questions, and we'll try to save some time at the end for your questions. This is being recorded, so if you have the drop off, it'll be posted later so you can catch up. So the first question, we're going to start with Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, can you talk to us a little bit about some ways your firm is helping clients during this, uh, during this crisis? Let me unmute first. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Um, first, I want to start off by saying I hope everybody joining today is keeping safe and healthy. So this pandemic has obviously impacted all of us in a very profound way. At Tegra 118, we've been steadily using assorted digital channels to communicate with our clients, just like this, what we're doing here with Zoom. Um, we've done virtual roadshows with our clients. So we've introduced them to our new company, which is Tegra 118 from Pfizer of Investment Services. 
Um, our clients are really looking for peace of mind from their wealth tech solutions provider right now, as everybody on this call knows. Um, so many have shared, you know, and, and are really working with a system that they feel is reliable and scalable. And we've, we've seen market volatility um, at record levels throughout this crisis. Uh, we are um, doing a few things in particular. One is to uh, mobilize a task force that is um, receiving inquiries and requests for assistance. And it's those things that they need quickly, especially in the middle of um, when the market was really volatile. That was used mostly at that time. We've seen that task force, uh, the questions come um, really slow down for that. We've created a, a support group for advisors. So advisors that our clients are looking for um, ways to navigate our system, more advisors are using it than they have before. So we put a support group in place to um, help with the high volume of calls across some of our clients. And we provided um, operations support during um, the crisis, especially again, when there was market um, volatility, when there are huge trade volumes um, to help with some staff resource shortages. Some of our clients had issues with India. Um, when the country shut down, they lost some of the resources. So we stepped in and helped with that. And then, you know, early on, we put in a robust business continuity plan. We're all working from home. We're making it work. Um, you know, we were just talking, uh, the panelists before this, and this might be something that we really, you know, really start looking at our real estate strategy. Um, but our, you know, our clients have, have really relied on us. Um, and we're making sure that, you know, first and foremost, our associates are healthy, our teammates are healthy, and we're, you know, really adhering to the health and precautions that we're, that we're getting. Um, but a lot of things that we did uh, proactively um, in the middle of this crisis, and I'm sure as everybody else can probably attest to. So John, so tell us a bit about what uh, Vestmark has done. Yeah, no, it's a, a lot of the same things Cheryl mentioned. I mean, you know, Vestmark's an advisory platform. So first and foremost, the trade volumes are through the roof. I mean, spikes of like, you mean close to 50X the normal day, you know, daily volumes, which is just incredible. So it means the files are just massive. So everything's late. So with, you know, Vestmark as the advisory platform and our clients as the advisory firm and the custodian, we have to like, you know, you know, just really manage the communication well, stay up late, making sure everyone's, you know, communicating on where things are. Um, so that's been the biggest thing I could say that to help push the data through all the different pipes. Um, but, you know, we, you know, Vestmark also has a, an outsourcing group too. And uh, it's, it's, it's part of our business. So some firms, you know, use Vestmark to, do some of their operations. So, but that group is, you know, uh, been a really good asset for us in, in this time because we've been able to help some clients that, that don't use the outsourcing group to uh, help with their operations. So, as Cheryl mentioned, you know, when India shut down, that that really did hit a couple of clients really hard. So they're bringing in their, you know, all personnel, their teenage, you know, kids, and and we're helping to train them, but we're also helping them, uh, you know, with the with the volumes that they've been hearing too. So in terms of um, you know, just the, uh, the, you know, with the outsourcing group, so. Thanks, John. So, Stuart, uh, how, what's it, what has InvestNet done uh, during this time to help clients? Yeah, a lot, a lot of similar things. We've seen a tremendous spike uh, as a result of a lot of the volatility that's going on by our clients and the service that they need. We have been, I think the main thing is being available and responsive. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got, um, we've got a lot of our clients who, similar stories, who, Honestly, weren't ready for. Uh, they didn't have their own business continuity plan. Even these are even enterprises, institutions, uh, or maybe the ones that they had. They just they just didn't stand up. So we've been able to lean in on a lot of cases. Our staff has really kind of stepped up. 
Uh, we, we've had, particularly in the, in, the, in the latter part of March, there's a tremendous amount of uh, extra work that people had to put in. Uh, we, were able to go, we were able to go virtual relatively quickly. Um, so that was a big thing. Uh, we've, been, we've been able to also leverage some of our capabilities. We've, we've distributed a lot of our tools to our clients uh, to use uh, in, in, in support of some of, the, some of the ways that they manage their clients. So that's another way that we've kind of, uh, we've, we've tried to lean in and help some of the firms. We've given away some of those particular tools uh, without cost for a period of time. I know other vendors, other, other people on this, on this uh, webinar have done the same thing. So I, I think that for the most part, just being available, uh, being responsive, trying to help them in, in their time of need, it, which uh, we recognize is uh, beneficial to all of us. Thanks, Stuart. I'm going to flip the script a bit here because, um, John, you covered uh, the next question. Uh, so, Eric, what are some of the, ch uh, the changes you're seeing in the usage of your platform or at Orion since the crisis hit? You know, we're, we're seeing, obviously, a lot of the same uh, volume increases that the others have mentioned. But the one area where we're seeing advisors, uh, you know, really have an uptick with regard to adoption is in our direct indexing tool that allows advisors, instead of uh, purchasing ETFs for their clients, they're purchasing the underlying uh, security constituents. And what that does is it allows advisors to take advantage of market volatility and uh, do some tax loss harvesting for the portfolios. And, you know, we've seen that increase five, five-fold uh, as we've gone through this crisis, Craig, and it's it's been it, it's been a neat thing to see. You know, the custodians dropped the uh, ticket charges to zero, and then uh, you know really uh, removed that friction point from the industry. And then on top of that, you combine that with technologies like the direct indexing technologies. It really allows advisors to come in and add a lot of tax alpha value to the client portfolios. And, you know, market volatility uh, is, especially on the downside, is never a good thing, but it certainly creates an opportunity here for our advisors to, uh, you know, take advantage of what the custodians are doing and combine that with some, some technology that's now available to them to implement and execute with their client accounts. Uh, thank you, Eric. So Randy, uh, how about you? What have you guys seen usage of your platform wise? Um, I mean, in addition to just the spikes of volume that everyone else has talked about, which were extraordinary and for them to be happening at the exact same time that the entire industry is pivoting to having uh, all of those people that are doing all those trades working remotely uh, to have that double whammy was, was uh, interesting to say the least. A couple of specific things we've seen, a spike in utilization of our mobile uh, apps, um, not surprisingly. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of uh, FAs needing to access our tools from home, um, whereas historically they'd exclusively, many of them use, use those tools from their, um, you know, from their office. So a lot of, uh, you know, network access issues and things, a lot of them weren't necessarily on us. They were our customers that needed to work through uh, some of those transition items, but there was a, a lot of activities. We kind of worked actively with our partners to make sure that all the technology that they rely on was fully accessible uh, by all of their support staff, their financial advisors, uh, and everybody else in the home office uh, that needs access to that technology from the homes. Uh, Cheryl, I wanted to do a follow-up on something you'd, you'd uh, written me uh, offline. Um, 
you mentioned you'd done a, a tabletop pandemic test, which I thought was really interesting. Can you explain about how, how that works? Hello. All right. So we do this on an annual basis and it's, um, it, it encompasses a few different things. We look at business impact analysis across the platform. So as everybody's talking about volumes, you know, we saw um, tremendous volumes as well, five times um, the normal volumes that we, that we see post, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, but we do a business impact analysis. We do emergency response. So we make sure we've got everybody's phone numbers, all their uh, information that we can text if there's an emergency, uh, make sure there's a call tree in place. We do recovery planning. We actually put together the worst case scenarios that we thought of that could come out of this crisis. Let's say three people on the leadership team get sick. Let's say, you know, five of your service people who service your largest accounts get sick. So we went through all that planning. Um, we went through, um, looked at our, you know, the administration of our healthcare plans, made sure that we had uh, changed some things that were necessary to change around um, if people were out longer than a period of, you know, five days or 10 days because of COVID. We let them, you know, ride that through their healthcare plan. So we did a lot of things like that. Um, and it's just something that we, we actually leveraged Fiserv in many of these. We, Fiserv still owns 40% of us and they've got great um, applications for this. So, um, you know, it, it lo we looked at what would happen if, you know, we lost 50% of our staff because of the illness. So all those types of things that you would do um, from, a, you know, in a pandemic type uh, way and through a crisis. I want to go back to Stuart uh, for the next question. Uh, so how do you think with this crisis and the economic crisis and, and all, all the uh, other area issues, how is it impacting the managed, account, the managed accounts industry and how do you think it's going to be changed long-term by the crisis? Yeah, I think the, I think what we're going to see, and we're starting to see this, but I, I, we started to see this over the course of the last couple of years, but it's just going to be uh, heightened, which is planning. Where, where, where does planning come to the, and how does it impact the managed accounts? Because it's not clearly, no, nobody planned for this, or at least uh, you know nobody saw this one coming. So it's, it's one of the things that will really impact uh, individuals in the planning, and, and that's going to have an impact on the industry. I, can, I think another element, which, which is somewhat adjacent to planning, which is, um, you know, you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lot of leverage of predictive analytics and how it's going to impact uh, the managed accounts industry and really in terms of selection products, building products, uh, building outcomes, you know, pred predictive analytics through artificial intelligence is going to be a, a meaningful uh, influence, if you will, on the managed accounts industry. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember which one of my colleagues mentioned it earlier, but, you know, being more Leveraging digital is going, to be, uh, is going to be something clearly that we're all going to see a uh, greater adoption of, and that's going to influence the, the market as well. And, and I think the last part, probably that we're all experiencing at some level is today is really enterprises are going to need to think, are going to, going to need to continue to think through what, what does scalable really mean? We, we've, been, we've met different levels of scales, uh, and we've really experienced and had to navigate through different levels of scale over the course of the last eight weeks. And um, hopefully the worst of it's behind us, but nonetheless, we've hit some new highs. Uh, and it's important for us to recognize that while we as service providers have had to think about that, our clients themselves are needing, gonna need to rethink that as well. So from a managed accounts perspective, what does scale mean? And how do you manage, if you will, mass relationships? And so that whole relationship between the digital and the human component of how an advisor or the advisory industry supports their, their own investors that is certainly, um, there's certainly a bright light on that. And there's certainly going to be some learnings that, that the industry takes from us, in my view. 
Eric, what are your thoughts on uh, the future of the managed accounts industry after post COVID-19? You know, Craig, I think the managed accounts industry has to get beyond the, the managed accounts. Like Stuart had said, it's got to start blending and combining planning uh, with the managed accounts, but it's also incredibly helpful for advisors as we go through crises like this to be able to leverage the communication uh, capabilities, the client and, and marketing tools that the managed account platforms uh, provide to connect with their clients. And a lot of advisors right now, as we go through this crisis, are dealing with, you know, their, their kids are at home, they're working from home, their, their staff is working from home, they are uh, struggling just like the rest of us. And at the same time, they have to try and figure out uh, how to uh, be empathetic with their clients about the struggles uh, that they're experiencing. And advisors are really carrying a double load of, of burdens right now, not only their own, but also their clients. And so by outsourcing to a managed account platform, it will not only help them alleviate some of the, the burdens that they're experiencing, but it will also give them additional collateral that they can leverage with their client communications, which is especially critical as we go through uh, times like this. John, how are your, what are your thoughts on where we're going to be after this crisis? Yeah, I, I agree with Eric and, and Stuart. I mean, like, you know, the advisors need to be advisors and uh, that's a big job by itself. I mean, outsourcing professional advice is, is always a good thing. I think the, the rep traded programs will always be there, but I think a crisis like this kind of illustrates the need for, you know, the outside managers to, to really do their, their job and, and, and do it well. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot going on. Like, you know, there's an incredible amount of, um, you know, model updates coming from the managers that we're seeing that the load is unbelievable from the man, from the managers changing their models every day. But again, they're focused on it. They're doing it as best they can. And then, you know, the advisors are actually changing strategies for their clients, which is also kind of an interesting, uh, you know, move for them to make, but they're, they're switching, you know, from one type of you know, investment vehicle to another. And, um, and that's kind of makes the perfect storm for all this trading that we're talking about. But, um, but you know, again, it's another, I think it's another good indication for managed accounts. I think the, the separate account is the purest investment vehicle that's out there today. I'm probably preaching to the choir in this group here, but you know, the mutual funds and fees, you know, the ETFs are volatility issues. It's, it really is, you have your own tax slots. It's really a pure investment vehicle. And I think, um, you know, people will begin to see the performance of that through this crisis. And, and again, it'll just be another tailwind for that, for the industry. Indeed. So let me go back to Eric. Uh, so with the crisis and with the changes we're seeing, what types of programs do you think are likely to see increased growth and in market share as, as people adjust to the post-crisis world? Well, I think our, our innovation cycles have, uh, been reduced. So, you know, it used to be that when you'd roll something out uh, on a mobile application or uh, through the web, that it would take a period of time for those technologies to be adopted. Now, within a matter of uh, six weeks, we've all had to become uh, Zoom experts. We've all had to become experts in connecting digitally and using digital tools. And I think that you'll see these uh, innovation cycles for technology companies, uh, you know, greatly reduced. Uh, our time to market is now, 
and uh, the speed to market is yesterday. And as a result of that, you know, the innovation pace is only going to quicken here as we move forward. Randy, how uh, are things going at Charles River in terms of uh, your, your, your views of products and programs being changed? Uh, I would echo Eric's sentiment in that I, I don't think the what has changed very much. I think, you know, COVID-19 doesn't substantively impact uh, the focus of most of our customers. Uh, it really is an acceleration of the pace. Uh, whatever you are working on, you just need to work on it faster and get it to market quicker. Um, you know, I think uh, what Eric was talking about earlier around direct indexing, uh, there's a lot of things going on in the market that are going to move uh, a lot of advisors and customers in that direction. Uh, there's a lot of money in motion, a lot of client self-directed money that is looking for advice, um, moving into, you know, advice solutions. And when your money in motion during COVID-19, uh, you're going to shop digital. You're not going to be driving around FAs. You're not going to be taking in branch meetings. You're not going to be, you know, picking up the phone and making a lot of phone calls. So uh, having a good way to digitally onboard and acquire uh, a new customer is, is super critical. So digital initiatives, digital-based platforms, uh, and then the interactive hybrid, you know, kind of FA digital programs. You know, look at what uh, UBS did with their Advice Advantage program or Merrill did with, with their Edge program. Just, you know, those types of solutions. I think a lot of firms, it was already a priority to build and launch all of those types of programs. Now it just became, uh, you know, it went, it went from important to urgent or even critical. Carol, uh, Tegra 118, one of the first uh leaders in the UMA space, first uh, developers of the UMA technology and platform. Have you seen uh, growth and market share in that? And do you see that as uh, being a, be a benefit, uh, a winner in the, uh, the post-COVID world? Yeah, I, I do think so, um, Craig, that UMAs will be the winner. Um, we have seen increased growth. We've seen increased market share. We're helping our clients get to the end state, which ultimately is the UMA. And then you know, we've been talking about UMH for so long, but ultimately the UMA is right now the end state for our clients. There's different types and different factors at UMA that we're working with. Um, but I do think that, you know, when you look at where, where we are right now and a, um, you know, a real superior portfolio that, that really centralizes and use, uses best of breed managers and lets the uh, investor have, you know, risk exposures within the account, UMA is really the answer for that. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of growth there. I'm sure the rest of, of you on this um, call are as well. I, you know, we're, we're seeing a growth, you know, growth across all of our product sets, but the biggest growth component, because it's newer and some of the firms are really just starting to roll out UMA, that's really becoming one of the bigger growth areas for us. And it's really because, you know, it allows you to have um, you know, sophisticated architecture and uh, platform consolidation and all those things that I think are, are crucial right now from a cost-effective, cost-efficiency standpoint. That's excellent. The, um, I want to move on to the next question, which is, we've seen uh, large asset inflows going into robo-advisors, digital advice platforms in the past few months, which mm -hmm. is sort of the opposite of what a lot of the pundits said was going to happen in a crisis. So, uh, do you see this trend, I'm going to Randy, do you see this trend continuing over the next six to 12 months or is it just a, a blip? Very much so. I think, I think uh, you know, firms that have made good investments in building out their uh, digital wealth platforms, robo-advice programs, hybrid, whatever, you know, nomenclature you want to use, I think are very well positioned, particularly if they've got a big brand behind them. 
um, uh, whether that's an established brand like a Vanguard or a, a Schwab or kind of a, a newer brand like a, a Wealthfront or a Betterment, all those firms are, are positioned to do well. And it's, it's going to increase what was already considerable pressure on uh, every firm to really uh, uh, up their game in their uh, their digital platform. I I I, I don't think it, it it is necessarily though going to you know kind of provide new opportunity for uh, early stage robos. And there are a lot of them out there. Um, there are a lot of firms that you know um, have, have launched digital offerings. It's going to be a tough time for a new entrant brand. I think um, I, I think you know it's going to largely be the the firms that have got good <laughs> digital programs or good brands that they can put behind a new digital program that will end up being, uh, you know, winners in, in this post-COVID environment. So over to Cheryl on the, on the robo-advisors. The, with all the, 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 the assets flowing in, do you think they're going to be able to scale? And we've already seen some problems with some of these digital platforms not doing so well under a load, which, uh, frankly, the firms on this webinar are here because you have been able to support huge scale with some of the largest firms in the country. Uh, what are you seeing with these asset inflows and do you think it will continue? I think it'll continue. I think digital just becomes table stakes. Um, so when you think about what Robo's done, at least for our business today, it's, it's enabled us to focus on the experience, the investor experience, the client experience. And I do think that we'll see that, to, that continue um, around scalability. So as all of us have said on this call today that we've seen increased trade volumes and increased uh, data coming through and custody data and all that flowing through our platform. Uh, Robo-advisors in many cases, and we're talking to some today, are looking to partner with firms like ours where we can actually leverage our portfolio accounting or the platform that we've built as the utility and the robo-platform does what it does really well, which is more that investor portal, that investor experience. Um, but I really see the robo-digital, I don't think they even like to be called robos anymore. I think they'd rather be called digital advice platforms but I do see those really uh, continuing to grow. And, you know, I think we've all learned a lot from them. And I think they're, um, you know, they're, they're what the investors are looking for up to a certain point when they get more complicated and they need real advice. Yeah, I think the firms just, you know, in general, I mean, every, everybody, every individual really just wants to be more self-service. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we all do in every aspect of our lives, including making tea times so at golf course. But, uh, you know, I think that the more self-service you can do online versus calling somebody and, <clears throat> trying yeah. to make an appointment that's it's definitely a big part of it and i you know i agree like being the you know for vestmark too it's it's more like the engine behind the experience so it's for us for us it's about providing apis and and widgets into um that firms can use and leverage um to customize and build their own you know personal experience or their own brand experience um so yeah that's exactly right i can't wait to that's get so a self-service for a haircut appointment <laughs> <laughs> Half of us need it and half of us don't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so we're about halfway through the webinar. I wanted to remind, we're getting a lot of questions. Thank you for everyone who's posting questions. Uh, we're going to try to get to a couple of them. Uh, uh, at about 1.45, we'll, we'll switch over to Q&A. But I want to please keep, keep sending them in. And uh, if we can't answer them all now, we'll, we'll, um, we'll post them uh, afterwards to the, uh, to the uh, attendees, uh, to, the, to the participants, sorry. So uh, we're talking about digital advice and let's stay, stay on the innovation track. Let's talk about how innovation is going to be spurred by this crisis as, as most crises often do spur innovation. And we know from the 2008 crisis, a lot of brand name firms uh, started in 2008. 
how is your company, being some of the largest firms in the industry, how are you guys encouraging innovation inside your platform? Uh, let's go to Stuart. Well, we run a, we have a, an innovation labs and you talked about 2008. I'll actually go back to, to the internet bubble in 92, I guess 2001, 2000. The InvestNet, that's when InvestNet was founded. That's when Tamarack was founded. That's when Yodely was founded. So these disruptions have these, um, uh, create, create a few of these opportunities for people to go out and start these businesses. And I'm sure that there's going to be uh, a lot of that that comes out of this, uh, out of this particular crisis. So I, I, in our organization, we actually have an innovations lab where we try to create, if you will, we, we try to create an environment where we take some of our best uh, thinking, if you will, individuals who've had some thoughts and we try to spin them off so that they don't have to be really focus on their day job. Uh, so they can go off and, and, and be creative. Uh, so investments are made in, in that regard. But as, as I think the whole market knows, we've also been pretty acquisitive over the course of our, over the course of our tenure. And we've acquired many different businesses where we've, where we've identified that there might be um, different organizations that have taken a different approach to how they want to solve for different problems that, that are part of the ecosystem that we traffic in. And we've acquired them that way. So we, we, we do a little bit of both. We're, we're fortunate to have, uh, been in a, in a position to be able to um, create, if you will, the opportunity for it to happen organically, as well as be acquisitive and, and try to find some inorganic opportunities. Um, we, it, when we have our innovations labs, we try to um, create, if you will, um, the, these environments to where people can go off and spend several weeks to months on working on some ideas. So that, that's one of the areas that we do. And I think the last thing I'd say is, and I'm sure everyone on the phone uh, uh, everyone on this call has uh, probably the same thing as we listen to our clients. I mean, really, really sitting down, listening to our clients, what are their needs? Uh, what, what do they see? Uh, and that helps us think about where we want to invest. Uh, let's go to John. So what, how is Vestmark spurring innovation inside your, your company? Yeah, no, you know, Vestmark, we've been around for, you know, almost 20 years. We've, we've always, uh, you know, grown mostly organically through our clients. We haven't taken a lot of outside, you know, venture money. And, uh, and so we really, as an enterprise provider, we really work with these clients. They, they really, you best mark as a, a strategic decision. So we get involved with their strategy, both what they are building, what they do need. Um, and that's been through the course of, the, of our history here. But uh, it starts with, you know, start early on with things like fixed income modeling, characteristic-based modeling to, you know, fulfill that part of the product. You know, the, our, our innovation in the UMA and being able to seamlessly transition between a mutual fund wrap account to an SMA to a UMA all in one account is, is also another big innovation for us. The lock options trading capability we launched last year, again, just trying to provide, you know, these sophisticated instruments, investment vehicles, just bringing them, enabling them to be more efficient um, so that our firm, our clients can bring it down market. And, you know, we, we've seen that trend where, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, a UMA, you, you probably needed a million dollars to be in a UMA. And as you bring it down market, you know, it's, it's through efficiencies that we provide and, you know, and other firms on the, on the panel as well. And even that's going down even farther. I mean, like, you know, getting to a smaller and smaller account um, with direct indexing or personal indexing, whatever that is, and enabling those types of products. It's just a continuum of, you know, enabling um, what our firms really are, you know, trying to deliver, which is, you know, again, better advice, you know, better protected advice, better compliant advice and all the ways that they're trying to differentiate themselves. And we're trying to enable them to achieve all of their, you know, all of their goals. Uh, Eric, uh, over at uh, Orion, how are you guys spurring innovation? You guys have done a great job bringing out new products and services at a pretty fast pace. 
Uh, what's your innovation secret? Yeah, so our, our application development teams uh, really look at five, uh, five different areas when it comes to innovation. First, we look outside of financial services. So while we like to think that we're pretty innovative, actually we're, we're, we're probably not as an industry. So we look at what uh, you know, best-in-class experiences are from a tech perspective outside of financial services and try and bring those back into our own business and, and help our advisors apply those. So companies like Netflix, Amazon, Apple, you know, these are truly innovative companies. They do things incredibly well. They execute well. They have user experiences that are uh, natively familiar to our users and our uh, advisors, investors. And so we try to bring those ideas back. So that's, that's the first thing that we do. The second thing that we do is we look at feedback from our advisors. So while we might think that we have great ideas here at Orion, our advisor's idea ideas carry uh, more weight. They're in the trenches. They are using our technology day to day. Um, so, so we like to look at, uh, you know, their feedback. Third, we look at uh, the great competitors that we have, many of which are on this call, uh, this webinar with me today. We really admire a lot of the things that our competitors are doing well. So we, we try and, uh, you know, really make sure that, that we're up to par in different areas, different things that they're doing well. Um, the fourth thing that we look at is data. We like to drive a lot of the decisions that we make based on data. And then lastly, uh, we look at our own ideas. So, you know, things that, that we think would, would help improve uh, our advisors' experience. But th those are the five things that, that our application development teams look at and in the priority order that, that we look at them. Thanks, Eric. Uh, moving on to um, something we're calling the, uh, the the impacts of the crisis. What's the the uh, uh, who's going to be the survivors of this crisis? And uh, if you've ever seen Michael Keats's advisor tech map, you know there's a lot of firms in our industry, a lot of VC-backed firms, and this downturn, economic downturn, can have an impact. Uh, some have said that up to twenty percent of the firms on that list could. Um, fail or get acquired due to the crisis. Uh, so John, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a, I mean, it, there's a lot there. I mean, certainly even the, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's, first of all, there's a lot of cash at the private equity and venture capital firms. There's tons and tons of cash. But they're, um, you know, but they're also trying to assess the, you know, they, they want to pick the winners and they're actually reallocating some of that cash around. So a lot of firms are running without, with cash needs, right? There's a lot of small firms running with cash needs. And so, uh, it's it's kind of scary for some firms, I imagine, that, that need the cash and your venture capital firm or your PE firm is thinking, well, are they going to make it or not? And, you know, maybe I should put my bets over there instead. It's really an interesting time for a lot of these firms. Now, for us, you know, we're, you know, Vestmark is a privately held firm. So, um, I mean, it's a good time for firms to want to buy, you know, firms. It's a bad time, I think, to sell a firm. But uh, and Investmark has no intention of selling. I mean, we're we've been at it for a very long time. I want to be. Ask, are you, is this, are you making an announcement now, or? No, no, no. I'm not making an announcement. So uh, <laughs> I'm just saying we want to stick around for as long as we can um, privately. But um, but I, I'm getting all these calls. I'm getting hmm. calls from every every firm on, on the planet, more than usual, hmm. and because it's a, it's a good time to buy. And I think um, you know if you've got a good strategy out there, a good acquisition strategy, then. 
uh, and you're partnered with a, you know some deep pockets, it's a it's a great time because I think there's there's going to be a lot of good deals in the market here in the next six the month, you know six nine months, and I think you know the valuations will lag a little bit from the market. I think even though the market's mostly rebounded, I I'm, I don't know if that's that's a thing, but um, but uh, you know I think the valuations are going to you know still be impacted. People are still going to want to you know put pressure on the firms that that need the capital. And, uh, and probably pick up some good deals. So I think there's gonna be a lot of, even more than usual, there's already a lot of M&A already, but there's gonna be more than usual. So, Bargain hunting. I think so. What do you think, Stuart? Do you see this, the, the, the crisis impacting a lot of the smaller firms and how, that sh- how things shake out afterwards? I do, I think it will. I think, um, I, I think and frankly, in our yearly business, we support a lot of FinTech companies. So we have a bit of visibility a bit of visibility into that uh, segment of the market, if you will. So I definitely think that it's going to impact it. I think it's going to be more than 20% that go by the wayside, honestly. Um, but at the end of the day, I think if you've got a good um, strategy, if you've got resilience, if you've got um, a few good clients, um, you know, I, I can tell you, um, you're, you know, you're, you're probably, you're going to see some firms really, really make a difference. I know that, uh, when we were running Tamarack in 2008 hit, uh, I know that that was a hard time for us. Um, but the reality is I think that we've, you know, we found our niche, if you will, and, and uh, we, we, were, we were committed to what we're doing. So I'm, I know that there are other firms like that out there. There's no question about that, that are, that are really stage VC funded or even bootstrapping them, who, who will make it. So, um, but, but I do think that there's going to be a fair amount of firms that, that fall by the wayside. It, let's face it, I think that, I, uh, there, there was a, when I first came into the Tamarack organization in 2006, Breckenstein put out a, a survey which indicated that uh, uh, both at the enterprise level and RA firms were spending less than 3% of the budget on technology. You know, that just shows that uh, that's a demonstration of how little was invested in technology back then. You know, today that number is closer to the high single digits, which is still not a tremendous amount, but it's more representative of what the rest of the world is doing from a from an enterprise standpoint. And, and I only make that point to say that um, the, this industry has matured when it comes to recognizing the value of technology. Eric was, Eric was spot on. I mean, we are, financial services has slowed it to, the, to, the, to get there and we're, we're still behind the curve, but we've at least matured enough to recognize the value of what technology will do to transforming businesses, whether it's making them more scalable, making the advisor or the advisors, the advisor offering more valuable to to their investor clients. So, you know, the the cat's out of the bag. People need to invest in technology. So, if people have the right solution, uh, they, they'll find their path. Indeed. All right. So the um, let me go over to uh, Eric. So, what are you thinking about this in terms of you? You know, you guys work with a lot of partners. Are you seeing maybe they might be going away and how does that impact the space going forward? Well, I think, you know, more broadly speaking, Craig, we're, we're at a time where we're physically distant from each other and advisors are physically distant from their clients, but they, they have to figure out ways to stay socially connected. So if someone has a technology or an idea that will help advisors socially connect with their clients, I, I think now could be a, a great time. Look, we're all starving for human connection. 
Um, I don't think any of us have ever been so excited to see our, our neighbors when we walk outside to get the mail. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's exactly how uh, clients feel. So we've talked a lot about different digital tools. You know, an example of a company, an advice business that has done a really solid job of combining uh, digital capabilities with, uh, you know, digital interaction and social connections would be personal capital. And I think a lot of advisors, traditional advisory firms, have to look at those business models and say, how can I tech enable my fiduciary process in a way that I can still stay socially connected? So if there's a, a, a new startup out there that can help accomplish those objectives, now's a great time to start. In fact, it's a lot better time for a business to start today than it was even six, 12 months ago, but they're going to have to rise to the occasion and meet and help advisors meet those challenges that we're facing head on. That's a good one. So um, I'm going to go to, we've got a whole bunch more questions that we came up with, but you know, we're, we're getting some really good questions on the Q and A. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump over to those. Um, and I think Randy would want to answer this question um, that someone just posted. And are we conflating digital advice solutions with digital experience? And what's the difference? Um, I, maybe we are conflating them. I don't know. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, consumers are going to be much more focused on the digital experience around uh, how they engage with their wealth. And uh, you know, digital advice uh, or robo advice is synonymous with a, you know, a pretty basic service, you know, a, an online risk tolerance questionnaire pointing to a solution and an account opening process, very, you know, defined or constrained, you know, for a, a retail consumer. Uh, but there's a lot more service and a lot more complexity when wealth complexity grows. All of the, the, the you know, million dollar, multi-million dollar portfolios and, and customers that traditional full service financial advisors work with have, uh, you know, much higher degrees of complexity uh, and service uh, that, that come with that. And, and so, you know, I think, you know, firms that can lean into that and develop digital engagement, not just around a simplistic onboarding process, but really holistically uh, enabling service. And there were a couple of, you know, questions around, uh, you know, digital service. Um, and there's been an interesting friction over the last decade as, as robo-advisor digital advice has developed around, you know, financial advisors not having uh, a role in that and therefore being resisting or resistant to using it in their practice uh, and, and really resistant overall to enabling digital service features uh, that would effectively reduce requests that would historically have come into their practice, for, for example. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that changing where FAs need to really focus on real value, real advice, uh, performing, you know, kind of very unique functions that only a, a human financial advisor can do. And everything that can be digitally enabled and digitally delivered will be digitally enabled and digitally delivered. And firms need to kind of embrace that rather than hang on to administrivia uh, as a means to deliver value. Um, that's, that's, that's really not going to work uh, post-COVID as, as we've all decided to, to really consume a whole new range of services digitally that historically we hadn't done. Everything that can be digitized will be digitized. Yeah. John, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, the, I mean, yes, the, yeah, we are probably complaining a little bit, but yeah, the digital advice is one, you know, one part of the market where, uh, yeah, that, that's another investment type, and that's, that's a great thing for a certain set of people. 
but yeah, the digital experience is, is really, uh, a, you know, a huge part of that. And it's still an issue today with repapering, you know, programs. So you have a you know, client at a broker dealer and, you know, the advisor wants to move from this program to another program. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Like nobody wants to do it. The advisor doesn't want to do it. So you can have like three SMAs. You have your clients sign up with three SMAs. You want to move them to a UMA. It's like, oh my goodness, I've got to like repaper the client or, you know, we all launch a new program and, you know, to shutter an, an older program, you got to repaper the client. It's still a really, it's, there's still a lot of friction um, for the advisor, for the investor, sign all this paperwork. It's, um, it really, it really does. It's going to take time to smooth that, those wrinkles out. I, you know, I, I, you know, we believe that there's really, there's a custody account and you get a, you know, that, that's a single thing. The custody platforms are, since there's no custody providers on the panel, <laughs> these things are really, really old and don't move and don't do anything else, but, you know, um, transact the, the account, but you bring it into another system, you know, like Bestmark, I'll just say that because I'm one talking, but, uh, you know, and, you know, the account can go through this whole transformation from, you know, a mutual unwrap to start with, to an SMA, to a UMA, and still keep the same registration on the custody system. And that, without repapering, the repapering part is more of a, a broker-dealer challenge, but, um, but they can, they can design a program, a, a single program to hold all those types of assets. And there's, there's some innovators out there that are working on that kind of concept. And the technology can support it today. So, um, but yeah, the papering, the repapering thing is a huge element of friction in the digital experience. So. Well, definitely. We, we've, we've also seen that. Shell, do you want to, to jump in on the digital experience versus digital advice? Sure. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, just being part of, when we were part of Pfizer, Pfizer did so much work on digitalization within the banking channel. And we learned a lot from that. When you think about it, you can take a picture of your check and it gets deposited into your account. You can open up an account really quickly. Um, I actually, um, just to, to try it, I opened up a Bitcoin account um, and saw how fast and easy that was. Take a picture of your driver's license and it goes all the way through. Um, so I think there's obviously ways in which this, our industry can, can do better. Um, and it starts with, as John said, starts with the custody platforms, but then also these the providers like us to help um, innovate and make those processes better. But I do think digitalization is here to stay. We can really put such a rewarding experience in for the advisors and ultimately the investors so much better than they have today. Um, APIs are much more important. Um, you know, really making sure data goes back and forth, much more important to enable digitalization. Um, but that is a key area of focus for us. Um, you know, when I think about our, our business and, you know, being part of now the Motive family, Motive Partners, Motive Partners is so focused on innovation and co-creation and aligning with the clients. And, you know, they brought a lot of that to us, which is great. So I do think you'll see a lot more from us on digitalization, automation, efficiencies, especially today, the cost to do things is so expensive when you think about back office operations technology can make that really streamlined and uh, um, a cost saving where some of those people could be moved into more uh, into different roles across organizations. So big focus um, from ours. And we learned a lot from the Pfizer world. Okay. We're uh, three quarters of the way done. Uh, I think everyone is doing really well and we uh, have got a lot of Q and a thanks everyone. All the attendees for posting questions. Keep posting. Uh, we won't be able to get to all of them, but we will send them all to the, um, the panelists, and we're going to be doing a blog post after this. We'll, we'll try to get some of their responses offline. 
and we'll try to get to as many of these questions as we can. So the next question from the attendees is around self-service. And I wanted to throw this to Stuart. Uh, in, before, the, before the panel, you would send some data you had, you had captured during the crisis at 70, you would saw a 78% increase in access of your, of your client portal. And someone asked, how important are client investor self-service features in your client portal roadmap? So Stuart, do you, you want to take that? How important is that now? Is it more important? You know, they're extremely important. And, and it really, I would say, you've got to appreciate, we don't obviously, as if on the phone, we're, we're trying to support uh, businesses that support investors. So the ultimate decision about how engaged the investor wants to allow their, uh, how engaged they want the, the, our advisor clients want their investors to self-support is really driven by them. Uh, but the bottom line is we're thinking about and adding a lot of capabilities, both from a client portal perspective, a mobile perspective, we actually even had, we acquired a business uh, at the beginning of 19, which is a, which is a natural language processing uh, chatbot solution, which helps uh, convert, if you will, um, real, real speech to text and leveraging artificial intelligence, uh, helping, helping individuals kind of self-support. So we are investing heavily in that space. We, we believe that, it, 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 again, this, this, it, this environment, what's happened here in the last eight weeks has really kind of emphasized the need, this is obviously, we're all talking about digital, but that's a different or an enhanced version of digital. We're just trying to make sure that we are refining the tools that we have, making them more effective, making the, enabling the end and the consumer uh, to really be able to experience what they're, what they're, what they are doing in financial services world, similar to what they're getting outside of this world. As, as um, Erica talked about, when, when you look outside and look at what's happening in entertainment or, um, or in retail and other parts of, if you will, the ecosystem that consumers deal with, we should have the same capabilities. So we, we see a lot of value in that, so we're continuing to invest in that heavily. Eric, uh, Orion's got one of the most popular portals. How are you seeing that uh, being impacted by the crisis, and is it becoming more important on your roadmap? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, many of the same ways that, that Stuart mentioned, you know, you see, obviously, a lot of increased uh, activity as people are looking at their account balances, but you know, the, the portals themselves have to be a, a combination of providing uh, you know, transparency to the investor uh, and blending that with guidance from, from the advisors. And, and I think that probably most firms listening to this uh, webinar today have client portals. You have client portals that are providing uh, values, account activity, uh, performance, but uh, you also want to make sure that your portal is reflecting your the planning uh, component of your value proposition. You know, are you allowing people to come in and see the impact of the crisis on their financial goals? Um, you know, the uh, the Monte Carlo uh, probability scores. How how are those looking as it relates to the current account values? Uh, that the client has today. And then uh, beyond that, beyond using your portal to connect with uh, your current clients, you know, being able to use those uh, planning workflows to connect with prospects digitally is really important right now because most of the new business that firms are bringing in today are a result of their uh, 
old prospecting efforts that, uh, you know, were in place uh, three, six months ago. You know, I, th I think there's, there's a reality that we're all having to get our heads around, and that is, you know, fundamentally with this crisis, we are in a work-from-home situation for the next 12 uh, months or maybe 18 months. And the impact that that's going to have on our firm's uh, net flows, new flows, uh, as we sit here today, we need to be thinking about that because, you know, a lot of the, the record flows that we've seen year to date are, are a result of the hard work that we all put in in 2019. And we have to go through this very big paradigm shift and ask ourselves, what are we going to do to digitally connect with prospects uh, so that we can continue the momentum that we've experienced year to date? And that is a really tough question that firms have got to be asking themselves right now. Uh, let's go to the next question here. So uh, that leads in your, your comment. I want to stay with you, Eric, your, your comment about planning. We got a bunch of questions about planning, financial planning. And uh, on the one hand, that they feel that the crisis has driven more uh, consumers to realize they need more planning, they need better planning, and that they're willing to pay a little bit more to get it, especially if they're getting close to retirement. So how are you, how is Orion addressing this need for more planning? Well, you know, obviously we, we have great integration partners uh, like Stewart's Money Guide uh, Pro offering and, and our friends at, at eMoney. We also, uh, you know, purchased a client experience uh, a platform advisor that allows us to extend planning workflows um, through our client portal. And that all of those ways are uh, really examples of what Mark Tiburgeon said our industry was going through. And that's a transition from having an asset management centered value proposition to not only having a planning centered value proposition, but an experience centered value proposition. And right now, more than ever before, that experience has to be digital. And we have to combine the best of human advice with digital interaction and capabilities. So we're all working very hard, all the members of this panel I know are working very hard to allow our advisors to express their value propositions digitally. And, you know, the time to do that, of, of course, is, is right now. And we're all, all of us are all hands on deck, ready to help advisors do just that. That's great. Um, okay, so we're down to seven minutes left, and there's a lot more questions coming in. Um, we have a question from someone everyone knows from uh, Lori Hardwick. Thank you, Lori, for this question. Uh, so what do you think that might be the change for enterprise clients in the decision-making process when selecting a new platform or service provider post-COVID? Um, we'll go to Randy for that. I think it gets back a little bit to your question earlier around um, Kitch's, uh, uh, you know, kind of wealth tech map and risk uh, sensitivities around risk are, are going to be through the roof uh, with all enterprise buyers. Um, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, after a long bull market and a lot of stability and a lot of growth for a long time, I think uh, a lot of uh, enterprise buyers have maybe been lulled into a, you know, uh, not as being as concerned about risk that, that uh, you know, vendors that uh, had, had good funding, even if they hadn't quite perhaps found market uh, product market fit fully or achieved cash flow positive, 
uh, as long as the solution was a good fit, there was a high degree of confidence that they'd be around. Uh, and, and maybe that, that, that uh, likelihood even increased by the firm making the purchase decision. I think a lot of that is going to change. Um, a lot of firms are going to be quite, uh, quite risk averse. Uh, and firms that haven't found good market, uh, product market fit uh, and, and kind of a repeatable sales process or haven't achieved cash flow positive, uh, those firms are uh, really going to struggle. That 20% you know, uh, projection that uh, Doug did on, on, the, on the wipe out there, I think it may be, you know, well under. And um, so I think, I, think, I think risk avoidance um, and uh, risk management is going to be the order of the day for enterprise buyers. Um, doing more with fewer vendors, going deeper with existing vendors um, is definitely going to be something that uh, I think enterprise buyers will be looking at. Cheryl, what do you think of uh, being in the enterprise space and working with some of the biggest firms in the industry, some of the biggest clients, how do you think their decision-making process might change? And I think um, what Randy said is accurate. I also think to add to that, um, you know, uh, firms are looking for um, better integration with their, you know, different components. So if they have a CRM solution, um, if they have different solutions that they need to be integrated with the platform itself, um, they're going to find people who, um, you know, vendors who actually will do that, who will be better integrated, who will have APIs, who have a robust API library. Um, so that's something obviously that that we're uh, that we have today. I also think that um, firms are looking for, you know, end to end. When you think about financial planning, you know, Eric talked about goals planning, and Stuart talked about financial planning, you know, our financial planning tool will be integrated with our core, you know, trading modeling platform. I think that full end to end is really where people want to go versus buying best of breed. I think that, I think somebody said this earlier, um, you know, the best of breed platforms out there, that, that strategy is no longer um, in place because of cost efficiencies that are needed, because of savings and you know, all those things that go around with having multiple platforms. So if you could have one platform that supports the entire value chain, you know, planning, proposal, modeling, trading, reporting all the way through, which you know, I think a lot of folks on this panel have, then, then I think you'll start seeing more growth. And I do think you're gonna see more come from increasing wallet share current clients want to do more with you. Um, so, but I do think it's going to be come down to, you know, cost is, a, is also something that's there, but cost isn't number one. That's not what we're hearing from the industry. It's more around capabilities end to end, making sure you have integration points with other um, firms out there so you can actually give a much better experience to the advisor and, and to the home office and to those that are using the platform. Right, the next question up. This is a really good question. Uh, I'm going to throw it to Stuart to start. Uh, will your firm be holding a client conference in 2020? Uh, I guess they need a live client conference or even in 2021. Well, 2020, unfortunately, no. And, and um, I went to school in Austin and that's where we're hosting it this year. So I'm sad to say that we're not going to be able to do that. But um, we are definitely planning on 2021. Nashville is the location. Uh, May is the time frame. Uh, and we will do, we'll be doing some virtual um, uh, gatherings, if you will, uh, for 2020 as, as an alternative. And uh, to the extent that we're, we're able to get back, if you will, and, and being in front of people, we'll probably do some regional types of gatherings uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, so really quick, Eric, what are, you, what are you guys doing for conferences this year and next year? Everything is virtual this year. Um, we're hosting a series of 
of webinars. Uh, and then we do have plans to host a, a conference in Phoenix, Arizona in late August, early September of 2021. We're, we're hoping we can do that, uh, Craig. I, I think that uh, the reality is, is Fingers that crossed, you know, right? we're, yeah, we're we're twelve to eighteen months away from a vaccine, and so, you know, it's it's uh, it's tentative at this point, to be honest with you. Okay, last question. I think we, we're going to be running out of time. Uh, so over to uh, to John. Uh, someone asked uh, the work from home environment. Is this going to be permanent? Are we always going to be working from home? I know you were talking about your developers love this. Yeah, they love it. This is uh, there might not be anyone coming back to work in the office anyway. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, you know, um, I think it's different per group too. I mean, the, you know, we have a lot of software developers, obviously, but, um, and, you know, they've, they've already been, you know, our, our development team, it's, they've already been accustomed to Zoom using, you know, doing it every day. It's, it's fairly distributed. Sometimes you find the right developer and they're in, they're in Missouri. I mean, so, uh, you know, that group is already, you know, in that mode already. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's no way, you know, we can, you know, force people back in the office. It's going to be a question of really saying when you're comfortable, come back. And uh, I think someone mentioned earlier, it's probably about a 30% number. And I think that's about the right, I knew it's less than 50%. I could agree to, you know, 25 or 30, but I, I really do believe in the social interaction. I think, you know, um, I think it's very important that there is a workplace that people can come to conferences like that. So that people can, like you know, really, really, you know, bond personally. And, um, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very diminished. I think it's this has definitely changed the workplace for maybe forever. Uh, all right, so that's thanks, John. You get the last word. It's now two o'clock. Uh, we're done. Thanks, everyone. Uh, appreciate your time. Hope everyone got a lot out of this. And we're going to be recording it. It was recorded. We posted online. And I hope you have uh, stay safe and have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Craig. Thank, thank you, Craig. Craig. Take care, everyone. Thanks, thank everybody. You. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Craig again. I just wanted to follow up uh, and do a little outro here uh, after you listen to that webinar. I hope you enjoyed it. Some of the big takeaways for me were hearing about how the managed accounts industry is going to be changed by the crisis, what types of programs and products these uh, leaders see uh, increasing growth and market share and why, uh, some of the thoughts on robo-advisors and why we're seeing so much um, inflowent assets into those platforms. Um, self-service options, whether they're doing that, digital device solutions, um, planning, how planning will become more important and how some of these firms are, are doing more planning. And, you know, we know that a lot of these companies have bought planning tools, at least uh, three out of the five own planning tools. And um, I think two out of the five uh, or three out of the five are also TAMPs. So uh, we didn't really talk about that, but uh, the, another interesting aspect of how the enterprise wealth tech space is changing and another good question was whether they're holding client conferences this year or are they waiting until next year? And uh, because that's such a big part of the experience with these firms, I thought that was a great question. Uh, will working from home be permanent? I know a lot of companies are doing that. And how will enterprise clients, you know, broker dealers, asset managers, banks, change their decision-making process when they select new platforms uh, post-crisis? All great questions. Hope you got, you pulled all that information out from listening to this this uh, episode. And before I go, please uh, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this on your social media outlets. And please comment if you liked it, what you liked, what you didn't like, post some comments anywhere you uh, you, you do that on social media. And I will we'll reply back when we can. And uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you all again next time.